0: If I were to put you on the spot, what would you say is the purpose of miracles? Maybe you would object to the existence of miracles. Uh, Maybe you would define and describe miracles as God supernaturally intervening in the natural created order. That would be a Christian definition of miracles. God supernaturally intervening in the natural created order. And Christians believe in the existence of miracles. In fact, our faith is founded upon them. We really do believe that God has displayed his supernatural power entering into this created order. But I don't really want you to describe and define what a miracle is. I want you to tell me their purpose. Think think about what's the purpose of a miracle. Why and for what reason do we have miracles? Why and for what reason does God supernaturally intervene in the created order? Miracles, if you can believe it, are, are necessary to salvation. I love what J. Gresham Machen wrote in his classic book, *Christianity and Liberalism*, Uh, concerning Jesus' miracles. Machen wrote, "Without the miracles, we should have a teacher. With the miracles, we have a savior." End quote. And that one little comment, I think, unveils the purpose of miracles. Miracles show us that our God is willing to step into the created order to rescue us from sin. God uses miracles to display His power. To call us to believe in Him and the message that His servants proclaim. In other words, part of the purpose of miracles is to call us on to faith in God. This morning as we encounter Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and stretching through chapter 4, verse 4, we are greeted with the apostles continuing the miraculous ministry of the risen Lord Jesus. After healing a man who had been lame from birth, Peter and John, they call for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read of this miracle in God's word, I pray that you would hear and heed God's call for faith. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you, invite you to open your Bibles, open your copy of God's inerrant, inspired and infallible word to Acts chapter three. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 911. And while you're turning there, allow me to bring you up to speed in our study of this book. In Acts, Luke, the the author of Acts, he wants us to see and understand the continuing ministry of the risen and reigning Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus prepared his disciples to receive the power of the Holy Spirit so they might be his witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, in the text we studied last week, we saw the Holy Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost. In other words, just as Jesus promised, his disciples were empowered. And in his sermon to the gathered crowd, Peter preached. He explained that Jesus, the the crucified, buried, and risen Savior is now reigning. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is simply a consequence of him exercising his sovereign rule as the scriptures predicted and promised. Those who heard the sermon were convicted They they said, what should we do? And Peter urged them to repent of their sin and to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after they were convicted and convinced that Jesus was the Savior, they committed themselves to God's people. They devoted themselves to Jesus' church. And that brings us to where we are today with Acts chapter 3. And in this passage, we see yet another wonderful sign, followed by a sermon and An expression of faith. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 2. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. A sign. And we saw a sermon. And we saw professions of faith. So Acts chapter 3 follows the same pattern. And if I were to summarize the message of this portion of God's word to you in a single sentence. Here's what I think it would be. I think it's there on an insert in your bulletin if that would be of help to you. Believe that Jesus can raise you up. Because he was raised up. Just as the scriptures promised. Believe that that Jesus can raise you up, just as he was raised up, uh, because he was raised up, just as the scriptures promise. Well, we're going to see, we'll study this passage in three sections under three headings. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, we'll see the power of Jesus as a lame man is raised up to leaping. Here we learn that Jesus can raise us up. In Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26, we'll hear the proclamation of Jesus. As Peter once again preaches to interpret this sign that's been uh, unfolded here. In Peter's sermon, we're reminded that Jesus was raised up just as the scriptures promised. And then in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, we'll see persecution for Jesus and professions of faith in Jesus' name. And here's where we learn that we ought to believe in Jesus. So, three points the power of Jesus, the proclamation of Jesus, and then persecutions and professions. Because of Jesus. Through it all, we learn that we ought to believe that Jesus can raise us up. Because he was raised up. Just as the scriptures promise. Well, let's begin with our first point. The power of Jesus. Here we see that Jesus can raise us up. Follow along now. As I read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized Him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to Him. Now it's at this point that I am sorely tempted to ask those in our lower elementary classroom to sing the song that they so often sing in connection to this verse, but I will refrain from that right now, and maybe if you see one who's a part of the lower elementary class uh, each Sunday you can ask them to sing the song for you but notice that the setting of this scene is striking. Peter and John they're on their way to the temple to pray somewhere around three o'clock in the afternoon. one of the designated hours for prayer that's uh, what three o'clock was the, the ninth hour. anyways according to the Old Testament the temple we must remember this place that they're going to uh, was where God promised to reveal his name reveal his power we see that especially in first Kings chapter 8 verse 11. Where God told Solomon that he would make his name known at the temple. Well, Peter and John, they're on their way there, but on their way, they they meet this man who we see has been lame from birth. And in order for him to survive, he had to depend upon kind souls to carry him so that he could beg for alms as people walked into the temple. In his condition, he, of course, had to remain outside of the temple. So here is a man who was born the mark of living in a fallen world his whole life long. He was a man who was lame, but no doubt longed to have a body that was perfectly whole. He received gifts from others, but we can very well imagine that he would have given anything to be one of those walking into the temple to praise God. Well, aren't you struck by Peter and John's compassion upon this man? Luke is careful to note that Peter and John, they directed their gaze at him. We should learn from Peter and John here, shouldn't we? When you see men and women on the street corner, standing, begging, don't avert your gaze. Look at them. Smile at them. Bless them in some way. If you can, speak to them about the Lord Jesus. They are made in God's image. They're worthy of dignity. So don't dehumanize them by averting your gaze. Direct your gaze at them. You can do that much. But you probably cannot do what Peter and John do next. Right? They don't give the man money. They give him a miracle in the name of Jesus. And the significance of this is to point away from themselves and to point to the source of this divine healing in the person of Jesus we must remember that in the scriptures the name of someone or something was often larger than just a mere identity marker it often stood for the the whole of their person and even sometimes their power so when when peter says in the name of jesus christ of nazareth he's saying in the agency and in the power of the risen lord jesus rise and walk this is not a magic formula we need to recognize this. There are a number of, of prosperity preachers out there who will say things like, in the name of Jesus Christ, your debt is gone and your bank is full. Or in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, your cancer is gone. Or in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, COVID is gone. That's nonsense. And what Peter utters here is not a magic formula by which we can pronounce infirmities or illnesses banished. And what's happening here? is we are being reminded about Jesus' power. Jesus healed this man through the apostles. Everything about this miracle points to Jesus. Just consider the the location, right? Where is this man healed? He was healed outside of the temple. And this is significant. God's presence and power is no longer located in a place, but in a person. This man is not healed in the temple or by the religious activity taking place in the temple. He is healed in the name of the one who fulfilled the temple and all that it pointed to. That's what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 2. The location of this healing points us to Jesus. But the language of this healing also points us to Jesus. In verse 15 of chapter 3, Peter is going to speak of Jesus being raised from the dead. And it's the same language that's used here of this man being raised up. The language of this miracle also reminds us of those times that Jesus performed miracles in the Gospels. Especially in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, there's a parallel miracle there. If you were to go and read that passage later this afternoon, you'd read of a man who was paralyzed. Who had to be brought to Jesus. Um, We see this here, this this man here in Acts 3. He he had to be brought to the temple. In in Luke 5... uh, This lame man as well, this paralyzed man, was told to rise up and walk. Just like we're seeing here in Acts chapter 3. And just as the people we see here, they're filled with wonder and amazement there in verse 10. So in Luke 5, uh, all who witnessed Jesus' miracle were seized with wonder and amazement. Just as God is praised here in Acts 3, so God was glorified in Luke 5. This parallel language is deliberately set before us to persuade us that the same Jesus who raised the paralyzed man from uh, in, in Luke chapter 5 is the one who raised this lame man through his apostles in Acts chapter 3. We could go back even further to the language that we read earlier in the service, to Isaiah chapter 35. Do you remember where Isaiah was speaking about what the Messianic kingdom would be like? What would mark the coming, the arrival of the Messianic kingdom? We read Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer. Jesus did all of this in his ministry and is doing it now. Even as he reigns in heaven, he's doing it through his apostles. Let us note carefully and joyfully that Jesus can reverse the effects of the curse. This is the power, the authority that only the author of creation can exercise. Science says this cannot be done. Jesus says that it can, and it was done. Friends, this is what you need to understand about miracles. They contravene the laws of nature. The God who made the laws of nature can break them whenever he pleases. When he does it, it ought to lead to our praise of him, not our pessimism. In the Bible, miracles are performed not as a spectacle, but as a sign of Jesus' power. And they call us on to faith in him. And so looking on these verses, we need to consider just a few more lines of application. We've noticed uh, Peter's compassion, and we ought to be compassionate. But we should think about two two lines of application and develop them. Let's think about prayer and the primary purpose of ministry. First, note that the apostles were men of prayer. As we saw in Acts chapter 1, the apostles gathered with believers in the upper room, and they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, we saw that the apostles were gathered with the believers and they devoted themselves to prayer. And what do we find here? They had every intention of gathering with God's people in prayer at the temple. All believers should be devoted to prayer. But I especially want to take a moment to challenge the men of this congregation to be devoted to prayer. Brothers, God has decided to order our households and his household, the church, church, of faith, with, with men in charge. And if that means anything, it means that we ought to be men of prayer. Men who are dependent upon God in prayer, because that's what we do when we pray. We're saying that we are weak, but God is strong. Men who are dependent upon God in prayer cannot domineer in their house or in God's house. This is good for you to pursue whether you are married or single, young or old. Brothers, we must be men who pray who know and sense our weakness and so call for God to fill us with strength every day and all throughout the day. Brothers and sisters, if you have no prayer life, seek to throw yourself in the way of those who do and those activities that incorporate prayer. Um, So you could turn up on Sunday evenings, the first Sunday of the month, where we have a prayer service. Uh, you could, if you're a man, you could turn up to one of the men's Bible studies. There are a couple meeting on uh, Monday night. There's one that meets on Wednesday morning. Prayer happens at all of those studies. If you're a, a sister, you could turn up to a woman's study. They happen on Monday night and Tuesday morning and Thursday night. Turn up to Sunday school. They pray at the beginning and the end. Turn up to a Wednesday night Bible study. We pray before the meal, before the study, and before we leave. If you struggle to pray, then throw yourself in the way of those who do and those activities where prayer is, uh, is, is present. Get together for, for lunch or coffee with somebody who you know has a vibrant prayer life. I am sure they will open in prayer, read scripture some way, somewhere along the way in that time together, and then close perhaps by praying for you. Put yourself in the way of prayer. The apostles were men of prayer, and we should be men and women of prayer too. We should also note The primary purpose of ministry. I've already pointed out that we we ought to learn from the apostles' compassion. But we need to recognize that wasn't the end and goal of their ministry. Consider that this lame man's healing was not the end and goal of their ministry. And it shouldn't be the end and goal of our ministry either. The end and goal of the apostles' ministry was to see this man restored to the corporate worship of God. Did you notice that in verse 8? We're told that the man began to walk and entered the temple with them. Entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. As we are able, we want to alleviate all kinds of burden. Physical, mental, financial, and emotional. Above all, we especially want to alleviate spiritual burdens. This man's greatest burden was not that he was poor. It was not that he was lame in the legs. But that he was separated from the corporate worship of God. Jesus' goal in powerfully healing this man through the ministry of the apostles, was not merely to see him made whole physically, as wonderful and important as that was. The primary purpose and goal was to see this man participate in the corporate praise of God, with the people of God. Well, we've seen how Jesus' power is displayed through the healing of this lame man. And in this healing, we're reminded that his physical condition is really analogous to our spiritual condition, isn't it? Jesus, just as he was physically restored by Jesus, So we need to be spiritually restored by Jesus. We need to be restored so that we can give praise to God due to His great name. This is only done by Jesus' power. And Jesus possesses this power. He possesses this power because He has been powerfully raised from the grave and to the throne. This is what Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. In Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26, we hear the proclamation of Jesus. As Peter once again preaches to interpret the healing, the sign that has taken place, the healing of this lame man. And this is the second sermon of Peter here in the book of Acts. We're reminded that Jesus was raised up just as the scriptures promised. So follow along now as I read verses 11 to 26. Verses 11 to 26. Acts 3. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from before your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, "And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed." God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. As I mentioned earlier, Peter's second sermon is a lot like his first. It followed the mighty work of God in Jesus Christ, just as Pentecost served to authenticate and authorize the apostles as witnesses of Jesus, the Messiah. So this sign does the same. And just as Peter pointed away from himself at Pentecost, so he points to Jesus here. Like his Pentecost sermon, Peter has three simple points. A Baptist, I tell you. First point, we did not do this. Second point, Jesus did this. Third point, you should turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. You can see Peter's first point there in verses 11 and 12. We did not do this. These verses, they open with the man who was healed clinging to Peter and John. What a striking scene, isn't it? Striking imagery. He clings to Peter and John, certainly because through them, Jesus gave him a life-transforming gift. He can now walk. But more importantly, Peter and John... He clings to Peter and John because through their ministry he was welcomed into the worship of God. And note carefully what Peter does not do. As the crowd collects around him, Peter does not turn into Oprah. He does not say, and you get a healing, and you get a healing, and you get a healing. He does not point to his power and what the Lord has been able to do through him. No, he points immediately to the Lord Jesus Christ. They make it, Peter and John make it plain as day, that they did not do this by their own power or piety. Note the difference between the apostles and modern-day faith healers. Faith healers are ever ready to point to themselves and to build their ministry. The apostles want to see Jesus exalted. And this motivation, the exaltation of Jesus, is what leads to Peter's second point. Peter's first point is, we didn't do this by our own power or piety. His second point is, Jesus did this by his power. You can see that in verses 13 to 16. And Peter, he he develops his point rather slowly, doesn't he? He begins with the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it's not until we get down to the end of verse 16 that we're told it was that the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health. Why does Peter beat around the bush? Why does he take so long to develop his second point? Why does he go back to Genesis and then on to Isaiah and then mention that something, happened, something that happened 50 days ago before finally telling his hearers what is happening today? Why do preachers do that kind of thing? Isn't it annoying when they don't just cut to the chase and give you the bottom line? We struggle with patience, don't we? We live in an insta-generation Uh, We've got Instagram and Instapot for those procrastinators who've gotten to making dinner just a little bit late. We, We want things done instantly. We want our information instantly. But perhaps there is some usefulness in surveying history and especially biblical history in sermons. Maybe it is for your good that preachers take a long time to develop their points so as not to leave you in ignorance of what the Bible says. Maybe it's good for preachers to develop their points well and thoughtfully and carefully so that you can be a good Berean and search the scriptures for yourself to see if these things are so. I remember one time talking to a dear saint about the length of sermons at our church and I was told that they were long. So I, I asked this dear saint, um, so did you read your Bible this week? Uh, to which this dear saint replied, no. No. And so I said, so I'm just catching you up then on your Bible reading, bringing it into play. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's catching these hearers up on their Bible reading, their history. He's showing them how history has been driving toward the events of these days, these last days and these events that they're seeing. Remember, Peter, he's addressing Jews. You see that there in verse 11? He's addressing the men of Israel. Peter is taking time because he wants to show these Jews that faith, in a crucified Messiah is not a contradiction in terms. It's not a contradiction of the Old Testament witness. Peter begins in Genesis because he wants to persuade his hearers that faith in Jesus is what the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers revealed. By mentioning patriarchs there in verse 13, Peter has touched on Genesis, but then notice the words in the middle of verse 13, that one word Peter says that the God of the patriarchs glorified his servant Jesus and that language of servant is undoubtedly a reference to Isaiah's prophecy you'll know of course that there's a massive section kind of in the the, toward the end of Isaiah's book called the servant songs these were songs about what God would do through his Messiah the servant and the Jews listening to Peter they would have recognized that the servant of those songs was God's chosen one God's servant would be the holy and righteous one who would restore God's kingdom Isaiah chapter 61 told us that God's spirit would rest upon his servant. Isaiah 53 told us that God's servant would suffer for the sins of the people and be rejected by men. Isaiah 53 also told us that this servant would see his offspring and that God would prolong his days. In other words, after his death, he would be raised from the grave. Peter identifies Jesus as God's servant, as the one whom God glorified. He does more than that too. He lays the blame for the suffering of God's servant, of Jesus, at the feet of his hearers. And he does it through a series of contrasts. Did you notice that as we read through? God glorified his servant, Jesus, but you delivered him over to death. You did it even when Pilate was ready to release him. God designated Jesus as his holy and righteous servant, but you denied him. You received a man who takes life. And you encouraged Pilate to crucify a man who gives life, the, the author of life, in fact. To use the words of that wonderful old hymn, a murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. They put Jesus to death, but God raised him from death. Peter and John and the other apostles, they were eyewitnesses to this truth, just as Jesus told them they would be in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, don't miss the fact. That when Peter is saying that God glorified Jesus, there in verse 13, and that God raised Jesus from the dead, there in verse 15, that what Peter is saying is that God publicly vindicated his righteous servant. Jesus' resurrection, we must understand, was God's vindication of his holy and righteous one. You see, as long as Jesus remained under the power of death, the righteous and holy character of his person remained in question. As long as Jesus remained under the power of death, his righteous character remained in question. If Jesus was allowed to remain dead, then we would have every reason to believe that he was a sinner and therefore not the Savior. But the removal of his death by resurrection from the dead was the public confirmation, vindication, justification, declaration that Jesus was God's holy And righteous one that he was free from sin and therefore the Savior that we all need and in verse 16 Peter once again circles back to make it plain that it was by Jesus that this man was healed thus he stresses the the name of Jesus Peter also makes plain that this healing did not come through magical powers but through faith and specifically faith in Jesus and though the verse is a little clunky verse 16 It seems as though the lame man placed his faith in Jesus and so was healed. We're probably looking at something of a a truncated account here. So we don't have probably the larger conversation where Peter and John are likely talking to this man about Jesus prior to instructing him to rise and walk. As I said, it seems as though this lame man placed his faith in Jesus and so was healed. And since this man believed that Jesus was risen, he was raised up, so this man was raised up. And so Peter, Peter's hearers, they should believe the same. And that's why in Peter's third point, he confronts them and calls them on to faith in Jesus. He calls them to turn to Jesus, specifically. You see Peter's third point, turn to Jesus, especially there in verses 17 to 26. And the emphasis on turning is really found throughout. But you can see it explicitly there in verse 19, when Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn back. And if you look down to verse 26... Peter says that God raised up his servant, Jesus, to turn every one of you from your wickedness. Peter acknowledges there in verse 17 that his hearers and the Jewish leaders, they acted in ignorance. While at the same time, pointing out that this was God's inviolable plan. God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Messiah would suffer and die. What is more, he would suffer and die bearing the punishment due to sin. After all, as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6, Isaiah writes, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Observe too the ignorance that Peter is talking about that this ignorance, it did not release them from the guilt of their sin. In undergrad, one of my criminology professors was fond of saying that ignorance is no excuse for the law. In other words, it, it doesn't matter if you're ignorant or unaware of the law. You're still held liable for violating the law. And that was true in God's world long before it was ever true in the Western world. We may not know the law of God, but that doesn't mean that we're not held accountable to it. In fact, we are. Moreover, deep in our consciences, we know that we have sinned and rebelled against God. We know that we've done things that we ought not to have done. And that we have not done things that we ought to have done. We are guilty before God. And so it is with these men who are standing before Peter. And the proper response to their sin is not to plead ignorance. For you cannot plead ignorance. The proper response is to repent and to plead for forgiveness. And the glorious news that Peter holds out to these ignorant and sinful men is that those who repent will have their sins blotted out. They'll be wiped away. They'll be removed from the sight of God by the blood of Jesus. Friend, have you repented? Have you agreed with God about your sin? Have you confessed that you are guilty? Have you turned away from your sin and turned to Jesus? The promise that Peter holds out to these men, the the forgiveness of sins, is available to you today. Your sins, all of them, can be blotted out. You may have been ignorant about your sin and salvation available in in Jesus in the past, but you cannot claim ignorance anymore. Not after hearing from Acts chapter 3. Jesus died, suffering, bearing the punishment due to sin. And he was raised in victory over sin and death, that we might have eternal life in Him. So turn from your sin and turn to Him for salvation. Turn for the reasons that Peter spells out there in verses 19 and 20. Do you see the reasons that Peter gives? Turn to have your sin and guilt removed from God's sight. Turn so that times of refreshing from the presence of God of the Lord may come. In other words, turn to Jesus so that you may be restored to a right relationship with God. Earlier, our brother Neo quoted from John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through him. In Jesus, you can receive new, refreshing, and eternal life by the Holy Spirit, a restored relationship with God. Turn to Jesus so that the Father may send Jesus back, and so that you are ready for Jesus' return that's what Peter's communicating there at the end of verse 20 realize that when Jesus returns that he will judge the living and the dead all those who turned to him through repentance and faith will be received into his eternal kingdom but all those who turned away from him who rejected him will be rejected and cast into the eternal judgment that is the hell of fire Peter assures us that Jesus is coming his return is certain And in verse 21, we're told that Jesus had to be received into heaven until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the Holy Prophets long ago is complete. So what is our response? Our response is to repent, to turn for forgiveness, to turn for refreshing, to turn so that you are ready at Jesus' return. At Peter's ears, they're no doubt questioning whether turning to Jesus is consistent with their Jewish faith. So Peter once again appeals to Moses as a witness for Jesus. In verses 22 to 23, he reminds his hearers the words of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. We thought about them uh, in Bible study on Wednesday night. We thought about Deuteronomy 18, and there we, we remembered that Moses told his hearers that God would raise up a prophet for them like Moses from among their brothers. And the people were, pro- were to listen to this prophet. Now just pause and think about Jesus' life for a minute. Do you remember what happened at his transfiguration with Moses and Elijah there? The father spoke from heaven. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is to be listened to. And Peter is telling them that Jesus is the one you are now to listen to. He's that prophet who Moses promised. Salvation is available to all of those who turn to Jesus, who listen to him, who believe his promises. But Peter also warns his hearers. Peter's an honest preacher. He warns his hearers that if they do not listen to the voice of Jesus, as foretold by Moses, then they would be destroyed. the consequences, the consequences of not listening to Jesus are eternal. There are eternal consequences for not listening to and turning to the Lord Jesus. And Peter, he is pleading with the people before him. He's throwing everything he can at them. He threw Genesis and Isaiah at them. He threw Moses and Deuteronomy at them. He threw Samuel and all the prophets after Samuel at them. And in verse 25, he returns to Genesis where he began. And he says, do do, do you remember Abraham? Do you remember that when God promised to him that in his offspring, all the peoples of the earth, that's Jews and Gentiles, remember when God said to Abraham that in your offspring, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Peter's saying, brothers, Jesus is your blessing. He's the offspring that God promised to Abraham in Genesis. So so turn to him and receive your blessing. Jesus was the offspring that God sent to bless you and to call you to turn turn you away from your wickedness. So brothers and sisters, I, I join my voice with Peter's plea. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Believe that God sent him to bless you with eternal salvation from your sin. Believe that He lived for you the life that you have not lived, the righteous and holy life that the Scriptures foretold that we see printed on the pages of the New Testament. Believe that Jesus died for you on the cross, completely bearing the wrath of God away as we sang earlier. Friend, revel in that good news that you will not have to to endure a single ounce of the eternal punishment that's due to your sin because Jesus was paid for it in His death on the cross. Friend, believe that Jesus was raised so that you might see and know and understand that he has victory over sin and death. And he can give you eternal life because he lives it now. Oh, turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main application of this text for you today. Well, having heard Peter's proclamation, and especially how Jesus was raised up as the scriptures promised we turn to examine our third point and the fallout of Peter's sermon. And in some we see two things. We see persecution because of Jesus and professions of faith in Jesus. Let's read now. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. I trust that you can see how these verses reveal persecution because of Jesus and professions of faith in Jesus. Persecution comes there in verses 1 to 3. And the professions of faith in Jesus come there in verse 4. But we should take a careful look at both. And as we dive into this persecution because of Jesus, you should know what I mean by persecution. When I refer to persecution in relation to Christianity, I take persecution to be acts of harassment or harm or both upon believers because of our faith in Jesus, our proclamation of Jesus, or due to our faithfulness to Jesus. In other words... Harassment or harm can come to Jesus' people because of our belief, because of our behavior, or because of our proclamation of Jesus. Harassment or harm can be mild or wild. It can be as mild as rudeness for gathering, for worshiping during the height of a virus. Or it can be as wild as prison, torture, or death. As you set your eyes on verse 1 of chapter 4, you'll notice that Peter was rudely interrupted by the Jewish religious authorities. They arrive as he is speaking. And Luke is careful to note that they were greatly annoyed. Have you ever encountered anyone who was greatly annoyed in your life? You know that that is an interrupting kind of of attitude. Notice that they were annoyed for two related activities. First, they were annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people. That was the Sadducees' job. And here are these upstarts. Peter and John taking over their turf and teaching the people. And the Sadducees, they they thought that they had dealt with this problem when they put Jesus to death. They didn't like it when Jesus taught the people either. But what do Jesus' followers do? Well, they pick right back up where Jesus left off. And this was no doubt greatly annoying to them. And as a relevant aside, uh, those who hate the Lord Jesus and teaching concerning him will be greatly annoyed by preachers teaching their congregations or by parents instructing their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And in time and if they are able, they will seek to find ways to interrupt such teaching. Now to make such a statement is not a call to a culture war. It is to recognize that from the very beginning of the Bible, there has been a war on God's truth. And wherever possible, Satan has used any means possible and sinful men and women to, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, so what is the response of God's people to be? It is pretty simple, really. To pray, to persevere, and to keep humbly and boldly proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The Sadducees, they were annoyed by Peter and John's teaching. But they were annoyed, annoyed by a specific teaching. Did you notice the end of verse 2? That Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you, if you know your biblical background, you know that the Sadducees were those teachers of the law who denied uh, that there was a resurrection from the dead. Often, sometimes, folks will remember that by saying they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Well, that's, that's what Peter and John are doing. They're, they're teaching a doctrine contrary to their sin- sincerely held belief right there on their turf. And read the language of verse 2 carefully. It's not just that they were teaching that Jesus was raised from the dead, though they were, but that they were also teaching that sinners could be raised from the dead in Jesus. Christian theology recognizes that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a harvest of resurrections to come. Listen closely as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20-23, to 23, and listen to the, the harvest metaphor that Paul develops here. Paul's statement there in 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most important doctrinal statements on the resurrection in the New Testament. Uh, And we have it here, really in seed form, I think, in John and Peter's teaching. But Paul was using a harvest metaphor, and he's saying that there is a resurrection harvest that has begun. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that there is an organic unity between the first fruits of the harvest, those fruits which first emerge... And the rest of the harvest. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the believer's bodily resurrection are not two events. They're not two harvests, but two episodes of the same harvest. They're one in the same harvest. That's the Christian teaching on Jesus' resurrection and our bodily resurrection. That Christ has been raised tells us that the harvest of bodily resurrection has begun. And we will participate in that same harvest when Jesus returns. The resurrection of believers has actually begun with Jesus' resurrection. So it is only natural for Peter and John to be teaching not only about Jesus' resurrection, but also the resurrection in Jesus. Christian, you need to recognize that the first installment of your promised inheritance has already been paid in Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And he'll bring the next and final payment At his return. Because Jesus has conquered the grave, and because we certainly will too, we ought to live with good courage and hope. What can man do to you? This is why Peter and John could endure persecution with happy hearts, because they know that there was nothing that man could do to them. That's what it means, really, to have an anti fragile faith and to be an anti fragile church. To know that God is in charge of all things and our future and destiny is certain, so we can obey joyfully and happily, knowing that we rest in His good and sovereign care. All of the harassment that could be heaped upon Peter and John would only draw them deeper into the sufferings of Christ and being conformed to His image. All of the harm that could befall them could not bring an end to their eternal life with Jesus. They could be bold in the face of persecution. And so can we. In fact, it has often been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Many have observed down through the course of church history that when and where believers have been persecuted, God has been faithful to preserve and even grow His church. Just look at verse 4, right? But, contrasting word, but many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. While Peter and John are being persecuted, many were professing faith in Jesus Christ. They believed the word, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was crucified, buried, and risen for the forgiveness of sin. And no persecution could stop this proclamation. No persecution could stop God's plan to save many, thousands even. When Luke says that the number of men came to about 5,000, it's hard to kind of know for sure, what he's talking about. There are several options. He could be talking about the number of believing males. Or he could be using men as in mankind to refer to, to men and women. Or maybe he's referring to the total number of conversions up to this point in the book of Acts. Or if he's telling us that 5,000 were converted on this day and occasion. It's it's hard to say. All are possible. Whatever the case may be, we know that the church has grown by at least 2,000 since the day of Pentecost. The professions of faith are rolling in as the Spirit and the gospel are rolling out in Jerusalem. What we do know is the kingdom of God is being restored by leaps and bounds, literally. And as we conclude, we should think about a few implications for our lives from this text. This word from our good God, it calls for a response of faith. We really should believe that Jesus can raise us up because he was raised up just as the scriptures promised. The man who leaps with a heart full of praise, that lame man who was raised up to leaping, he shows us that we should praise our God too. Our bodies may be wasting away, growing more and more lame day by day, but if we are trusting in Jesus Christ, then we're being renewed inwardly, day by day. Even if our bodies can't leap, our hearts should. Give thanks and praise to God that He has looked upon you with mercy, that He has not averted His gaze from your case, that He has looked, that He's sent servants to you. Give thanks and praise that just like He sent Peter and John to that lame man, that He has sent servants to you who told you that in Jesus' power, Jesus can raise you up from the pit and mire of your sin. Give thanks that God sent those servants. They called you. They challenged you to rise up and walk with the Lord Jesus. And Peter's sermon it also has a word of encouragement for us too. Our God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, is the God who preserved and governed and orchestrated history so that at the right time and in fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, He could send His one and only most beloved Son to rescue sinners like us from the grave. Christian, if God so orchestrated all of that history to send His Son for you, believe that He is in control of the rest of history as well. He has told us that Jesus will return And he certainly will. God is in charge of history. He should be in charge of our lives too. We should bend the knee to Jesus. And believe in him. And we should be ready to suffer persecution. For Jesus sake. Even if we are put in the grave. Due to our faith. Or to our faithfulness to Jesus. We can be sure. That Jesus is going to raise us up. He has that power. We've seen it here in Acts 3. So let's. Allow God's power demonstrated in the healing of this lame man. Demonstrated in raising his son from the grave. Call us on to faith and faithfulness.